0: On my side i'm so glad i don't hear i have an administrative question for you all because you guys have led more concerts than i ever will um because you all are way more important than me do you all do how do you feel about the like so we don't do paper programs we normally do we've been doing a cr code if there's anything that people want to see but we normally have an mc we kind of do that sort of a thing where we give program notes from the stage um
1: do you guys have a strong feeling one way or the other Uh, my feeling is that uh, once the concert ends and you go home you might like to have a program in your hands to jog your memory of what they played and perhaps how they played it and then any just general information if if people are hearing your group for the first time they want to know when you got started and you know how long you've been in existence and throw in a little history as part of the program I, i think that's helpful
2: yeah, I I feel the same way as as Paul on this. Although there are many people in my organization that as, that are younger that feel like we're transitioning away from that world where people would rather look online for content rather than have it in their hands. So we're, you know, we have this debate all the time. The last concert we did, we didn't make programs. It was an outdoor concert. And I am seated from the stage and, you know, with COVID and everything, we just thought it was best not to, you know, pass out, you know, just pass out things. Um, you know, so we're we're kind of, we're in the middle on that. We don't, we don't have strong arguments about it. Some concerts will be like, yeah, let's just not do a program for this one. You know, and other concerts were like, no, we need to, we need to do a program for this one. It just kind of depends
3: I think I, I think I'm in the middle, too. I think I, I agree with Dr. Drosty that like when especially if it's a if it's a, an important concert to someone and I I don't think we always know what an important concert to someone is going to be, you know, maybe maybe it's, uh, you know, important for sentimental reasons or or someone really liked a concert or it's the first concert of a certain kind you know? And so they want to save that program. Um, I mean, I, I, just, I went through it. I, I found some of the, some of my save programs and some of them were just, you know, there was a piece that I really liked <laughs> or, or like a little segment of a solo that I really liked and I saved it. Um, and so I, I kind of like saving some of those. And also like, when people are trying to prove that they've done something, they might want to save those programs. Um, so I, if it were, if it were me, I would put like a QR code, like, you know, like those like plastic, like things that they have at restaurants, you know, maybe you can put a QR code, like say like, here's, you can take a, a program or if you want to save some paper um, and you don't mind, you know, you can just scan the QR code. So you give yeah, them the option.
0: That's what we've done is we've done a QR code at like, we always do an entry desk, desk type of a thing. And then we'll put the QR code there if they really want to. And we'll also mention from the stage, if you visit our website and cause we, we, the thought process is one, it's an expense that we don't necessarily need to incur. And then two, it drives them to our website and gets them on our mailing list and stuff like that. Yeah. But I think, I think having heard this, I think i we might have like, you know, programs upon requests, type of a situation like so only print out like maybe like 15 or 20. We don't we, we typically have like 100 in the, in there, you know, but if you really happen to want a paper one, it's there for you. I think we might do that
2: at uh, no, that time really, of the year to make yeah, decisions. Can't, you can't really go wrong either way. You know, some people are going to be happy and some people are going to complain and either way. So <laughs> with, with that opening conversation, I'd like to introduce Dr. Paul Drosty, who is our guest for this episode. Yeah, uh, we're very we're very happy to have uh, one of the premier names in, in North American brass banding. Uh, he's been the director of the Ohio State University Marching Band and the founding director of the Brass Band of Columbus. So we're going to have some conversations that that go into the go into the history of of what Dr. Drosty has been doing with brass bands over the course of his career. Uh, the The first thing that I want to ask Dr. Drosty is um, is how and a lot of people don't know this is they don't really realize that the Ohio State University marching band doesn't have woodwinds in it. It's all, it's all brass and patterned after a British brass band. So can you talk to us about how that actually came about?
1: Yes, I can do that. Um, we like to think that uh, here at Ohio State that we are unique and having an all brass and percussion marching band. Now we know we're not the only ones in the country. There are some high schools who have gone that route and there's gotta be a college or two or university that has. But um, in terms of uh, the big schools, the big 10, the well-known universities, uh, we are unique. And uh, it really came about Eugene Weigel, who was the director of the marching band from 1929 to 1939. Uh, spent a little over a year in Europe right after World War I studying music. It was in Berlin primarily. So uh, I'm not sure how much he got across the channel to England, but he was uh, uh, well-versed in the European brass band tradition. Uh, So that's step number one. Step number two is that shortly before Mr. Weigel came to Ohio State, a new stadium was built. The old Ohio field um, at full capacity was probably about 15,000. And then they went and built a stadium where full capacity was uh, originally about 70,000. Now, who's dreaming here? You know, uh, you're going from 15,000 and a hard ticket to get, and all of a sudden you're begging people to buy tickets to get into this stadium. But it uh, went from a small intimate facility to a large mammoth one. And Mr. Weigel, and I think rightly so, um, decided that instruments like clarinets and saxophones and flutes just would not add much to the sound of the band in the large stadium. So you can enlarge the size of the band. That's one way to do it. And that's what most of the bands have done. I think most is, I think uh, within the big 10, because these are the bands that I've seen that come to Ohio uh, fairly often. Uh, They're big bands, they're 200, 250, 300, Purdue pushes 400 once in a while, but they don't make an attempt to balance brass and woodwinds. The woodwinds in a sense are lost by themselves. However, when you listen to recordings of these bands and uh, we have what we call a skull session indoor in our old basketball arena, where they come in before the game and play and we play for them and we play in front of 10,000 people, Um, the woodwinds have a slightly mellowing effect on the large marching bands. Uh, The ones with woodwinds aren't quite so much in your face as a brass only band would be. However since we know that uh, we preach tone quality and we preach intonation and we preach sensitive playing Uh, i do remember one of my first days of tryouts uh, as a freshman um, i was used to kind of blasting in the high school marching band because the director one day said if i don't hear paul playing I don't hear the baritone part, you know, and so, oh, I got to carry the part. So uh, that lasted about one minute when my squad leader and the person marching next to me said, Hey, high school boy, we don't do that here. <laughs> you know, you got 20 baritones and, yeah, you know, et cetera. We just play nice and full, but play clean and don't blast and don't stick out. So uh, we have taken, uh, I'm sure, either deliberately or accidentally. Uh, the style of playing of the fine British and English brass bands, non marching bands, and tried to incorporate that then into an outdoor performance. And uh, what what happens is, uh, during a typical season, and I did 14 years as director of the band and uh, starting in 1970 and finishing in 83. Uh, we have an indoor sound and we have an outdoor sound. And outdoors, we can get away with a few things we can't indoors. And we always played an in uh, uh, a concert on our, our big auditorium, our Mershon Auditorium, uh, toward the end of the football season. Sell out, crowd always, high school bands coming in by the bus loads, uh, a big deal for us. But it took us a week <laughs> of rehearsing inside to kind of get to that inside sound again. And we uh, then would always incorporate a recording session um, the day before, on a like on a Saturday, an open football Saturday, a teams away and we're not going. Uh, find that week and then have a a recording session on Saturday and then play a formal indoor concert on Sunday. And then come Monday, we're back on outdoor things again. So the versatile bands and the ones that have um, SOB directors who insist on a certain type of sound in a certain situation, uh, we find that the brass band, the all brass band works beautifully for us. And the joke we always have is if it's snowing, or if it rains, it won't hurt our woodwinds. Yeah, you know, uh, we just we don't have to we don't have to deal with it. Right. We have yeah. drum heads and we have brass instruments. Let it right. rain, let it snow, let it freeze, just so the valves don't freeze. Of course. I
3: this was this was really interesting to hear because I don't know if you uh, if I mentioned this to you, um, but uh, my grandfather on my dad's side played in the Ohio State marching band. No, I didn't. Um, yeah, he played he played trumpet or cornet. I don't know what they were playing at that time. Oh. Um, but he played trumpet and he was in I was told for 2 years, um and then he was studying agricultural sciences at uh Ohio State. Mm-hmm. And uh when I think I heard that his sophomore year, second year of college, um that apparently they, you know, they came in to class and said, you know, we're shutting down this program um, because we need farmers for World War II. Oh. And so we need, we need all of you to, to go back and help on the farm because um, it was agricultural sciences. So my grandpa left and he never finished uh, his degree at Ohio state, uh, but he was in for two years. And was then when what, it was
1: early forties
3: then or late 30s, yeah it must have been it must have been early 40s because you know they must have based on based on them shutting it down for for you know food production it would be interesting to know more about that because it's always kind of like hand, it was handed down through generations so i'm like i'm a little bit removed from it but then when it be, when it was time for my dad and his uncles to choose an instrument then because their dad played trumpet They all, all the boys played trumpet, you know, and then it was time for me to choose my instrument. And because my dad and uncles played trumpet and my grandpa played trumpet in the Ohio State Marching Band, you know what I chose, (laughs) (laughs) I chose (laughs) trumpet. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of cool hearing, hearing the history of where he must have been, you know, he was, he would have been involved in the marching band around the time that you were just talking about, which is really cool.
1: Yeah, those were were interesting years, and they were a little ahead of my time, but uh, starting in 1954, there were still some Army veterans in the band that had been gone for three or four or five years and then came back to finish their degrees and finish out their their band experience. Uh, Ohio State was one of the few college bands during the war to actually have a full-time going marching band, Uh, They compromised in numbers. We used to march 120 for the first couple of years in the war years. They scraped to get 100. And then as the war was winding down, they got back up to 120 again uh, as the war was ending. But at that time during the war, we let the woodwinds back in to get our numbers up. I mean, you know, you don't turn down a warm body. In fact, uh, as stories go, there were people who carried instruments, but without mouthpieces because they didn't know how to play them. But we needed a bod- bodies for formations and for drills and for script. Ohio couldn't leave any letters out there, uh, so there things were different during those during the early forties and forties uh, right after the war. Yeah, but uh, so the woodwinds we we have. Uh, marching band reunions every year. We didn't have one last year, but from 1966 forward, we did. And the first time I marched when I stopped being the director, um, I was marching, going around the the circles in the the block O for Script Ohio. And I heard some trumpet player playing the melody up an octave. And I'm ready to nail this guy. You know, we just don't <laughs> do things like that anymore. And I turned around and here it was an old timer on his clarinet. <laughs> he was playing laser clarinet, <laughs> but that's what he played when he was in the band. You yeah, know, and then we yes, had people that before 1934 were still coming back at that time. And then uh, the people from the war years were welcome back. They were legitimate members of the band. Now, one other interesting thing is uh, the band until 1973 was an all-male band. And you'd say, oh, my goodness, that's terrible. Why was that? Well, why was when a band program was started in the Ohio State Mechanical and Agricultural College, as it was called then, and they had what later became ROTC, but there were cadet programs uh, mandated by the federal government because we were a land-grant school. So the band was taken from the Corps of Cadets to play for military functions. They didn't function as a football band for a while. So there never were women in the band. Uh, The OSU Concert Band, which was all male also, until the beginning of the war, integrated immediately because so many of their players were being called away. Uh, There were never that many male flute players and even clarinet players. So if you wanted to have a flute section and a clarinet section and maybe a few double reeds, you had to have women. So they integrated them. Uh, in the late 1960s, um, the first year, the first band that they gave me to conduct at Ohio State was the ROTC band. This was combined Army and Air Force at that time. The Navy always went off by themselves, and they had a little 20-piece band that they used, but we were the, the band for Air Force reviews and Army reviews and tri-service reviews and that. And we were always all male and it said so in the catalog open only to male students. And two young ladies showed up uh, winter quarter when we organized the band for the year, marching band was done. So we rolled out the ROTC band or military band. Two girls showed up and said, we'd like to join the band. And the first thing I was going to say was but we don't have women. But I caught myself in time and I said, but it's only open to ROTC cadets. And they smiled and looked me in the eye and said, we're in Air Force ROTC. And my next statement was, welcome to the band. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. was so quick. Now, the marching band, because of its visibility and just a built-in fraternal feeling, um, uh, we weren't open to suggestion. We had to wait till we were mandated. And at the time it mandated the Higher Education Act of 1972 to Title IX. Um, we, we made the best of it. We had some hard heads in the band who didn't want to accept what was happening. And we weeded them out eventually or converted them. But was not a smooth transition, but we did it. And I still once in a while get in front of the band to say a few words and say, ladies, look around. How many of you are here? The band today I think is pretty close to one third female and two thirds male. And I said, look around because you wouldn't be here. If title IX had not happened 20 or 30 years earlier, you know, I mean, you, we, we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us and, and uh, we had five women in the band that year. And I, I'd say this publicly because it's a good banquet statement to make. Um, we monitored these five first five women in 73. Any problems, come see us. How are things going? Casual conversation or direct questions. Um, we made our first trip. And I said, you have a choice. You can ride with your Rose which means you might be the only woman on a bus, depending which row you're in and the others, or I can put you all on the lead bus with me, the band staff, the guests, um, the drum majors, the, the ones that weren't in marching rows. And all five says, we want to ride with our row. So they take your chance, but they did it. There was an adult chaperone on every bus. <laughs> uh, at the end of the season, I called the five together and said, "Okay, you know, let's kind of rehash this first year, which we did. And I said, now, how many of you are planning on coming back next year? And all five of them said yes. If those five girls would have quit after one year or if we'd have lost three or four of the five, we'd have been starting all over again but we built, we had five. And then I think the next year we were up close to 15 and then it became 25 and incrementally boosted to now it's pretty well leveled off. But uh, we were a, a kind of a microcosm of, uh, of the country at that time. So yeah, thanks for bringing that up. And thanks for telling me, now you say your grandpa where your, your dad and your uncle's in the band too?
3: My, well, my, my parents went to Capitol um, for undergrad and, and Capitol had a marching band at that time. time. And my, my dad was a drum major um, at Capitol. And so he took lessons from the Ohio state um, drum major. Um, And, and my mom was a majorette. And to, to this day, my dad can twirl like circles around my mom. (laughs) You give them a baton and he's just Right, it's, yeah. it's amazing. I don't know how he still remembers how to do it, but he does. Yeah, um, and then ahead. he, he and, went to, he went to Ohio state for med school. And my mom went to Ohio state for her, her graduate, uh, for, a almost all of a master's degree in teaching. But at that time, um, uh, having a teacher with a master's degree was just a, it was, too expensive. So the thing was she, she got most of the way through and then, and then left. And then the idea was then that gives you some more maneuverability with, with salary and, and makes you more competitive. Um, so, so my grandpa went to Ohio state. Um, my dad went to Ohio state, (laughs) my mom went to Ohio state, (laughs) um, and I moved over to the UK for school. So, (laughs) Yep. I didn't I didn't really I didn't follow in their footsteps. I want to, but. Want
1: to tell you a, a Capitol University marching band story. The band was conducted for several years by Nick Perini. The
3: Oh yeah, <laughs> Nick horn, Perini.
1: Eminent horn player.
3: He's legendary. Aaron and Tony, he is yeah. legendary.
1: Well, anyway, Nick, of course, was an Ohio State graduate, marched in the OSU marching band. So I suppose when Capitol looked over its faculty and say, who can we stick with the marching band? Why, Nick, I am sure Nick stood up and said, I'll take it. Well, Ohio State does script Ohio. And at the end, when the OHIO is finally formed, then a sousaphone player struts out and dots the I. Okay, that that's a tradition. That's a sacred tradition. Okay. Nick decided he was going to do a script CAP, C-A-P, period. Okay. So they did it and the sousaphone player strutted out to be the period, and when he took his bow, his bell fell off. <laughs> oh. And this, I, think, I think God was telling me something. <laughs> you better not do this. Yeah. Perini <laughs> was...
3: The first time I heard Perini play <coughs> was he was playing at, like, a faculty like uh, recital, and I don't remember what concerto he was playing. Um but one of his one of his valve slides he played horn one of his valve slides slid out and not just not just fell on the floor like it went clear across the stage like it was one of those awkward like like it was like a mute drop only worse like you hear it fall and so everyone cringes because they hear it fall and they're like oh that's expensive and then it slides across the floor so it's like ping and then there's a brief pause and Perini just keeps playing. He just finished out the movement with alternate fingerings.
1: Uh-huh,
3: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he just violin kept going.
1: By, violin <laughs> really. player known to break a string but keep playing by playing on the other three.
3: Yeah, that was that was my first introduction to him. And I immediately knew why that man was a legend. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well we played quintets together for many years the uh, Columbus Symphony had a brass quintet but the trombone player wasn't free during the day for school concerts and I was so I as a substitute played with Nick and Bob Haichu. and uh, we we were a little loosey-goosey once in a while I mean you get into an elementary school and you think you can get away with murder and uh Nick, Nick would always uh, give a hilarious demonstration on the French horn, you know, he play William Tell or something. And one, one day he played William, Twet, William Tell and nobody laughed and didn't get much applause. And he said, oh, you know, this was a famous radio broadcast. And then he looked at the teachers and he said, well, you remember radio, don't you? I mean, there, there were just all sorts of opportunities for things. And Nick was always right in the middle of those, just absolutely right in the middle.
2: Uh, those that's are good stories. I wanted to, um, to pull things back a little bit to, to brass band and how, um, how the Ohio State marching band actually related to brass band. Did they play on brass band instruments? And um, did you have any brass band training prior to being the director of the marching brass band, or did you kind of develop into a brass band person through that and afterwards?
1: Um, I developed into a brass band person through uh, by way of the marching band. Um, When I played in the band, we started a recording series of mostly marches marches and school songs. We didn't branch out very much for recordings on that. And as a result of that, in addition to Le Regiment, the Sambre Moose, Mousse, from the French, we played some English marches, we played some Alfred. we played Sousa, of course. And we were introduced to what I would call the brass band marches or marches as played by a brass band. Now, um, when I started the brass band the Columbus, we had no money and we had no library other than a few marches in the marching band library that we immediately pulled out that had brass band instrumentation. But we could take the wind band version of any Sousa march and hand the clarinet part to the E flat soprano player and say, Here, write your own part. If it's filigree, you know, write it in your part. And so we were an all brass band with a one man woodwind section. <laughs> but it worked. It worked. You know, um, I won't say we we didn't miss the woodwinds. We sort of did, but we we got along very nicely without them. Uh, So the brass band, um, let me tell you what, let me just start because I made some outlines for myself here. Let me just give you a brief, how did I get involved in music? And then we'll get right to brass bands. Uh, I was born and raised in uh, Fairview Park, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland on the west side. And my cultural experiences being a Clevelander were the Cleveland Indians and the Cleveland Browns. The Cleveland Orchestra was on the other side of town, which was like an hour's drive, maybe, (laughs) right through the heart of downtown. You didn't want to do that very often. So in terms of having, you know, benefiting, oh, you grew up in Cleveland and you went to Cleveland Orchestra concerts. Well, yes, I went to a few, but um, not... Not that many. (laughs) So anyway, um, in the fifth, well, in the fifth grade, uh, my parents decided I should take piano lessons. Okay. We had an older lady teaching. um, It was a member of the church and had taught for years. I took one lesson from her. And I remember she was showing me where middle C was, but I already knew that. (laughs) Uh, And then she got sick. And she just had to stop teaching. So all of a sudden, here I am, and and I didn't want to play piano anyway. Uh, sixth grade, Frank Barr was the the music teacher in the system. Did all the general music in the two grade schools we had, uh, high school band, high school choir, whatever else was involved. And I remember him coming into my sixth grade class and saying, I would like to start some of you on band instruments. I will give you free private lessons. Now this is sixth grade. Seventh grade was in the high school building. There really wasn't a separate middle school at that time. So he was recruiting for the high school band. So I took lessons. I I said, okay, I, I wanna do this free lessons. My parents bought in right away. So what do parents do? Like your family, Amy, we all play the trumpet. Well, my mother played the violin, so that didn't count. Uh, My dad said, let me check around the family and see if I can find an instrument for you. Let me check on that. So he comes back a day or two later. He says, we got a saxophone. You want to play saxophone? I said, well, okay, Uh, wasn't enthusiastic, but it was there. So I took the saxophone to my first lesson with the high school band director. And I no sooner got it out of the case, I didn't even play a note on it. He looked at it and he started laughing, uncontrollable laughing. Oh, I haven't seen one of these in years. Oh my gosh. But it's not a band instrument. Now, what do you think it was? Mind you woodwinders.
2: <laughs> was it a tenor horn? Yeah,
1: I was gonna say a tenor oh, horn. No, no, It was the saxophone. It was oh. a saxophone. Alto, tenor, C Melody. C Melody. Oh, C yeah. melody! C Melody saxophone was oh. developed at one time. So in <laughs> jazz little combos, you could read over the shoulder of the piano player and follow the notes or follow the changes or whatever. There was never a band instrument. You you can't pass out music and find a part for C melody saxophone. So at that point, my life changed. He looked at me and he said, this instrument won't work. What do you really want to play? And I said, well, I think I'd really like to play the trombone. And he got on the telephone and he called my mother and the the conversation was short and sweet. The saxophone won't work. Rent the kid a trombone and hung up. (laughs) (laughs) He says, you'll have your trombone in a couple of days. So without starting on trombone and playing trombone and then later shifting, adding a doubling on the baritone, uh, I could have come to Ohio State as a saxophone player wanting to be a high school band director, but would not have qualified for the marching band. But I didn't pick the trombone because it got me in the marching band. Um, Later on in life, when I considered myself a professional musician, if somebody called and says, I have a trombone gig, My first question is, what does it pay? If they called and said, I've got a euphonium gig for you, I said, where and when? Right. (laughs) Because I wanted to play the euphonium. You know, so anyway, um, my undergraduate work, well, let me summarize. I have three college degrees, bachelor's, master's, and doctorate. I never studied in those settings with a euphonium player. My first teacher... Uh, Lakewood, Ohio, private lessons all through high school was an old time cornet player. Max Denmark, Seen the concert. You've probably played that sometime in your life, Amy, or you'll have students that will. Uh, that was written while I was a student but he didn't dedicate it to me. Um, master's degree at Eastman, studied with Donald Naub, who was the bass trombonist in the symphony. Naube taught the euphoniums and the tubas. He taught Roger Bobo, good gods. Just just stay, just end it right there. You know, If you're Roger Bobo's <laughs> teacher, you must be one hell of a tuba teacher. And Dan Parentoni and the others that went through Eastman uh, all studied with Nobby. Charles
2: Dahlbach, I believe, was with that group.
1: Yeah, right. And the bass trombones, of course. And um, Emery Remington was still teaching trombone at that time. I think he had, uh, let's see, what did he... He probably taught eight lessons a day, eight hours a day, five days a week. And he was in his 80s at that time. So I didn't bug wow. him. I, I, I met the man. We talked. We could stop in the hallway and chat once in a while. And he'd say, How are your euphonium lessons going with my student, Nobby? <laughs> good, good, Mr. Remington. Good. But uh, that got me on the Remington warm ups, my first lesson with Nobby. He says, Play Remington number one. And I said, Who, what? <laughs> He says, <laughs> get out to the music store and buy it.
3: <laughs>
1: so I was taught by Donald Knob in the Remington style. I mean, the things that Remington preached. Uh, in terms of teaching techniques, Remington vocalized every note that you played in the studio. Like some teachers would sit down and you're playing an a etude or solo and they would play with you. He would vocalize with you. And he had a set of leather lungs after years and years of doing that, that you'd swear they were playing trombone duets. (laughs) But the chief was holding his own with his voice. Now, Nobby did some of that with me, but he didn't do it nearly to the extreme. And I don't know how you can sing and still listen to the player at the same time. You know, I mean, you got to. Shut your mouth and get your ears open.
3: <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Anyway, I had the was in the Remington system, so to speak. Um, I should have played in the trombone choir, but I was trying to get out of there in nine months, which I did. So um, you know, just take take the 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 letter of the law and thank you for the degree. Uh, but I went to concerts of the trombone ensemble that Remington directed, and snuck in a few rehearsals once in a while and got to know the trombone players by being another miscellaneous quartets and quintets and things that year that uh, pretty well had an idea what the system was. And to this day, when somebody said, you know, they went to Eastman and they studied with Remington and they're a great player because they're in a big symphony or they're doing the uh, Boston quintet or something, you know, and, My always always my question was, were all of his players great before they got there and he just polished them up a little bit or did they take some prospects and really develop them? Now, at Ohio State, we took prospects. When I went to school there and started, anybody who got a high school diploma could get in Ohio State. It wasn't quite that much, but that's the way it ended up. So we took people based on potential. You know, they would come in and say, well, you don't really play very well, but we got some things we can work on here and give us four years and we'll polish you up real good. That was the level of student that we got there. So different philosophies, I guess. Um, I decided uh, I started a doctorate at Ohio State in music education. This turned out to be a research degree. I hated it uh i wanted performance i wanted conducting i wanted to play recitals and make recordings you know and that didn't fit in that so i did my year there but the the thing that did happen that was good is that uh, they hired me as the graduate assistant director of the marching band so that's the foot in the door to come back to the band that i dearly loved um, back as a staff member this time and when I left the doctoral program to go back into public school teaching, uh, both Jack Evans, the current marching band director, and Charlie Swan, his assistant, who later became director, said, Paul, when a vacancy occurs, you're on the short list, you know, as in for like assistant director, you know. So one day I picked up the newspaper, I was teaching in Pickerington, just outside of Columbus, and it said, new assistant director hired for Ohio State marching band, Fred Dart, euphonium player. I said, damn, that's my job. Uh (laughs) You know, (laughs) I never knew they were looking, you know, I I didn't have a chance to apply. So Fred lasted three years and then moved on to the University of Kentucky. So after three years there, I was up at Lakewood by that time, teaching strings of all things. Uh, Got the call. Are you interested? Yes. Come on down for an interview. Came down for an interview and had a handshake agreement and, and the paperwork will be in the mail. So that was hired then as assistant director of the marching band and teacher with Jack Evans in the brass pedagogy classes and obviously taking over the euphonium studio. So, all right, so that gets us up to there. Now, when I took over the marching band in 1970, I had in my mind that in the off season, the winter and spring terms, that we might be able to pull a red hot brass band out of the best players in the marching band and not disturb the school of music because all those top kids are busy they're in the orchestra they're in the jazz band they're in the top concert band fall time they're in the marching band you know we don't need another band or another group but i was willing to work with non-music majors because we had some absolutely outstanding non-music majors in the marching band some of whom did go on to play in the top concert band. Some of my euphonium students did that. Uh, So anyway, um, by that time, uh, I had heard the international staff band. They toured Columbus, Salvation Army, wonderful concert. uh, One of those memorable occasions where you want a printed program at the end. Now, what did they play that night, you know, that I was so impressed with? Um, And then... Uh, my first year of directing in 1970, I got a telephone call from Reg McGovern of FSR Recordings. He did all the marching band recordings in those days. And he said, the National Band of New Zealand is coming to Columbus. Wow, didn't know that, you know, because we're like six months ahead of time, you know. And so uh, they were right in our Mershon Auditorium. And he said, now you need to get, get acquainted with those guys because they're on like a one- month tour and some of them are taking out a second mortgage on their house to pay their tour expenses and um, some government help but they're they're paying a lot of their own but they're great they're really great so um, I got a hold of their uh, business manager they were in the states then and it was about two weeks or so before they were coming to Columbus so I said to we'd like if you get there early enough for the concert to come and visit our marching band rehearsal, outdoor rehearsal, four o'clock to six o'clock. We'll put on a little show for you. American marching band, all brass. Okay. well that sounds good. And then I said, and uh, after the concert, we'd like to have a reception for you. Oh, I don't think we could do that. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a little offensive here. I mean, I'm offering you a free, And I finally said the magic word. Now, what do you think the magic word in the New Zealanders would be for a reception? Free, free beer. Free beer. You got <laughs> Those guys drank, you wouldn't believe. They're, let's see, they were traveling. It's like a double-sized band. So they were probably in the 60s, counting the 60s. And their 60s out drank our 120. There was no contest. <laughs> I mean, under the table. <laughs> anyway. Um, We took the staff to dinner. Elgar Clayton was the director, a wonderful old timer. Uh, Talk shop, talk, and he says, whoa, you could certainly have a regular British style brass band here with all these wonderful brass players you have here and your marching band. And so that kind of planted the seed. Um, The New Zealand band came back in 1984 and a lot of them had been there in 74. And a lot of them had been there also in 1970. So that when the concert was over and we drank up the kegs in the Ohio union, they headed to high street. <laughs> and when the bus left at six in the morning, some of them had not seen the hotel yet. <laughs> they paired off one of them, one of us, five of them, five of us, you know. And so we had a real, and then they came back in 1980 with Merv Waters. And then Reg McGovern got me in to judge the New Zealand National Brass Band Competition. And I said, "Reg, I'm, I'm not telling this to the New Zealand New Zealanders, but I've never judged one before. Wind band, yes; brass band, no. I don't know the literature. Yeah, so on, so. So anyway, with a big push from the New Zealanders, and." Uh, when I was there that, that year, Norman Goffin and I were the two judges, and he judged the grade A and C bands, which is the top band and one of the middle bands. I judged the B and the D, and the D was the lower class band. And uh, I, I have to relate this story because now we are getting into brass bands here. My reputation going to New Zealand was as an American marching band director. That's what the, the blurb said. Now, to New Zealanders, marching band, especially American marching bands, they're thinking of high school bands and some of the college bands that just blow the roof off of the place and blat and jump up and down and, you know, uh, a non-musical type. Mm-hmm. And so they thought that I liked Faster and Louder. So the first night when I judged the lower bands, which are conducted by inexperienced conductors everything was fast and everything was loud and i nailed them on i said well because no you're playing mozart you're playing you know you you can't do that Mm -hmm. so the next night they went the other direction they played everything soft and sweet and i had to nail them again i said no it's forte you've got to you know so the experience of the brass band tradition in New Zealand, which is directly from England. In fact, most of them were immigrants. Um, Elgar Clayton was a was, was famous in England before he ever went to New Zealand. And a lot of the soloists, the cornet soloists, the phoniums, uh, they were Brits that the economy wasn't good after World War II and they went to New Zealand. So a miniature English scenario so anyway um, when I left the marching band after 14 years and um, it wasn't burnout but after 14 years I had done everything I was ever going to do with that band to make it better it was just going to be more of same I had 13 bowl trips in 14 years which meant I never had a Christmas holiday I mean we were planning right before Christmas, I'd have Christmas Eve and Christmas with my family. And then day after Christmas, we're on a bus or we're on an airplane to go to a bowl trip. And uh, we'd come back from the Rose Bowl at five o'clock in the morning, being up for 24 hours. First day of classes was with eight o'clock in the morning. I told the band, if you go to class, you're crazy. <laughs> Stay home for a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was just that. And I didn't want 14 more years of that. So stopped. Um, At this point, they didn't give me a band in the School of Music. They could have given me the third concert band or something. Uh, I had given the military band to Willie Sullivan, one of our assistant marching band people, so he could have a band of his own, uh, which is how I started. And so all of a sudden, I don't have a band. But they put me in charge of the summer band. I had a summer contract and said, well, rather than you doing marching band stuff in the summer, you take over the summer band. So it was kind of a reading session, student conducting, got to know some of the players in the band. And I'm thinking if I took the brass section of this summer band (laughs) and supplemented them with some of my friends, I got a band right here. I mean, there was Dan King on cornet. There was Dave Eaton on cornet, John Owens on cornet. I mean, there, there was the section right there. And the Columbus Symphony at that time was transitioning from a part-time to a full-time symphony. So people like Bob Haichu, solo trumpet, Jim Moore, principal percussion, Valvor, principal timpani. Uh, who else did I pick up on that? But they were now having to do their daytime jobs and drop the symphony. So the time was right. So we had a couple of reading sessions that summer. And then uh, I made 30 phone calls and got 29 yeses. And the brass band, the Columbus started. Now I want to. This transitions in the here, like how do you start a brass band? Um, what level band do you want? We wanted the finest group that we could get. I wanted the finest musicians that were not in the Columbus Symphony Orchestra or the Jazz Arts Group, or you know, employed basically full time, or had teaching jobs that. You know, so anyway, uh, it was by invitation only. And my invitations went this way. I called Jeff Keller, who I thought was the finest uh, of the non-professional trombone players in town, good in jazz, good, legit, quintet, marching band, grad assistant, the whole thing. I said, Jeff, I'm starting a brass band and I want you to be my principal trombone. Now, who would you like to have in your section? And he gave me a couple names. We talked over some possibilities and I said, fine, don't say anything to him. I'm going to call him fresh, but I will tell him that Jeff Keller and I are talking about starting a brass band and we want you in it. So that's the way it is. And then when we had a vacancy or somebody said, no, we had a, not a, not a formal audition committee, but we just talked amongst ourselves. We need a third cornet player. Who would be happy playing third cornet at a high level and not be jealous because he's not sitting in the front row? That's the kind of player we want there. We would give concerts in that first year or two of our existence, and people would come up after the concert and say, Drosty, you really got one heck of a brass band here. Uh, I'd like to be a part of it. I'd like to join. What night do you rehearse? And I said, I'm not going to tell you what night we rehearse, and I'm not going to tell you where we rehearse. Because you don't show up unless you're invited. And then they, they let out, you know, I probably haven't had my trumpet out of the case in the last 20 years, but boy, I want to get back going again. <laughs> yeah, this is exactly the guy we don't want. <laughs> you know, we don't want this. So anyway, by being selective within ourselves, inbred, you can call it, um, we got the best players. And they stayed. and. The brass band was formed in 1984 and we're going on 35 plus years, 37, 38. And there's at least a handful of charter members still playing. And a couple of them died or they'd still be playing.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we have the same issue in, uh, in the triangle brass band. I still have about five charter players from 1986 that are still playing in the yeah. band.
1: The other thing is if you let a weak player in and because the band is kind of starting off our love, our level of playing is not that high. You let a weak player in when the band gets better, all of a sudden this guy or this gal doesn't fit anymore and you can't get rid of him. Well, I was there when you needed me, you know, I'll, I'll sit here on third cornet and not make any noise. And yeah, yeah no. <laughs> so be selective always just don't, invite anybody i want to tell you one uh one exception i made to that and um, amy do you know tammy mclaughlin is that name familiar to you
3: no i'm sorry Uh, i don't know that name
1: tammy's sister was the first female cornetist in the new york staff band in fact played soprano Mm -hmm. tammy was a wonderful cornet player just absolutely outstanding Uh, she and her husband were in Iowa. They were in the Eastern Iowa band. And I guess conducted them a couple of times just in rehearsal and preparation Mm -hmm. for contest. Uh, One night I rehearsed them and I rehearsed them hard for two hours. And I felt that they were really getting tired at the end. Mm -hmm. And we got to the end and John DeSalm, the director, came up and said, Tammy, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I intended to rehearse Napoli tonight, and you know, we've just run out of time. And she looked him in the eye and says, I can do it. And she played Napoli beautifully on bad chops. I mean, tired chops. So, boy, I'm impressed right away. Mm -hmm. And then I get the phone call that you you dream about once in a while. Uh, Hello, Dr. Droste. Yes, well, this is Tammy McLaughlin. Yeah, right. Okay. She said, my husband and I are moving to Columbus. Can I audition for the Brass Band of Columbus? And I said, no. And then once that sucked, soaked in, I said, Tammy, where do you want to sit? <laughs> you know, she said, yeah. well, I'd like to sit in the, in the front row. And I said, we, we, can, we can accommodate that. I can't give you the top seat because Dan King's got it and he's going to be there forever. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's still there. But uh, we'll get you up there and we'll, we'll do some solo work with you and so on. So that's how we got Tammy. And her husband was a French horn DMA student at Iowa. And he came right into our tenor horn section. Great. Got two for the price of one. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, th- this is how a band like the brass Band of Columbus in Columbus, Ohio evolved.